Well, good morning again. Jude in the New Testament, the second to the last book of the Bible, page 866 in the Church Bibles is where I'd ask you to turn this morning. And so if you're here and you're wondering why we're in verse 17, this morning is because a few months ago we started in Jude in in chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been working our way systematically through Jude, and now this morning we are on verse 17, and I'm going to read verses 17 to 21 in just a moment. And so while you're turning there, if you have questions about Jesus the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, or why those cameras in the front are now gone... (laughs) I'd count it a privilege to try to answer those questions for you, and I'm glad those cameras in the front are are all gone. Let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 17. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men or the people who will divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Amen. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, we we do thank you for the privilege that has just unfolded, the singing to you and calling on your name in power for your grace to come down on all the precious children of this congregation and particularly those that came forward this morning. Thank you for being here. Father, through the night, you've, you've watched over us. We arrived unharmed to your church and we are in your presence and we are in the company of your people. Many things, God, could have happened to us last night, but again, you watched over us and you pervert, preserved us from these dangers. And since it is your mercy that did this, and that is now another day we have been given, we would now dedicate both our souls and our bodies and our minds, everything to your service in a sober and righteous and godly way. We ask, God, that you would reaffirm to us even now that what it means that you, God, should die for sin, that you would die for the horrible things that we have done and thought and regrettably still do and continue to do and think, sometimes a little, but sometimes a lot. And therefore, we would ask you to forgive us and strengthen us in such a way that as we grow in age, we would grow in grace and we would grow in knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would walk humbly before him and we would tremble at his word. And for Jesus' sake, not only do we ask all these things, but we do ask that you would greatly bless all the ladies that are here this morning and that you would please help me now and help all of us in the study of this, your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, we learned in verses 14 and 15, you can see that if your Bible is open, that Jude gave us a description of the coming judgment a description of that horrible but righteous day of how God will judge everyone and how God will judge decisively, particularly those deceivers in the time of Jude and all deceivers in every age. Verse 15, uh, Enoch, seventh from Adam, said, and we can see it there, uh, the Lord is coming to judge everyone with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. 
And I want you to notice that two of the most often repeated words that Jude uses are the word all and the word ungodly. All ungodly acts, all ungodly ways, all ungodly words spoken against God, which have been done uh, defiantly before his presence with no genuine repentance in Christ. All of that will fall under God's judgment so that we should know that no one is getting away with anything. And for the Christian, as we struggle with indwelling sin to our last breath, uh, the hymn that came to mind this week that has a line, Though you know all my ways, yet your love for me endures. And when I think about these things, it makes me love you more. And then the refrain, I praise you for your faithfulness, O God. Because if it wasn't for God's faithfulness, His superabundant grace in Jesus Christ, the Christian would be under the exact same all judgment with the penalty given for all of eternity. And so what we went on to say was that it was a mercy that, would, that God would warn humanity again and again and that the consistency that has marked God's given description to humanity about that judgment day in every age, that consistency underpins the certainty that that day is unquestionably approaching. And so these men are people, verse 16, who are guided by their own passions, who decide for themselves, who are, who are arrogant enough to criticize God's providence, and who are, uh, the middle of verse 16, specialists at finding fault. In other words, uh, these are godless people, who I like to call the aha people, right? They go around, aha, you got it wrong, aha, you're doing it wrong, aha, you can't tell me what to do, uh, aha, these people will be judged and convicted and sentenced because the simple and orderly God-ordained trust that should be between God and man and between church leaders and God's people are not part and parcel of these deceivers' practice. They're lawless, they're Christless, they're arrogant, they're rebels who seek to only gratify themselves who have never known a day when they got it wrong. Hence the boasting, 16b boasting all the time because they never get it wrong. And then the flattery, verse 16c, as that inner beast needs to be fed and one of the ways they feed it is by falsely flattering other people uh, to their each demise. Now that takes us to verse 17 and following. And in this, Jude now gives us four commands from all the way to the end of the text, verse 17, all the way to the end of verse 25, he gives us four commands, two of which we're going to walk through this morning. Now, these are the commands that Jude gives to us so that we might know how to contend for the faith. Remember, that's what Jude said in verse 3. He was writing, and that's the basic message of the book. Okay, Christians, here is how you are to contend for the faith. And so we should know straight off that how we are to contend for the faith comes to us now by way of, you, if you would, uh, apostolic precept, or this is the word of God. This is how God tells us to contend for the faith so that none of us in here have the liberty to contend for the faith any way we like. You see, that would be the rebels and the deceivers. And so Jude, as the pastor of this church, if you would, or the, or the overseer of this church, says, okay, this is how you contend for the faith. You're supposed to. Now, this is how you ought to. And so he tells us, verses 17 to 19, he tells us what we should remember. And then verses 20 and 21, he tells us what we, what we, what we should do for our own good. And we're not going to get to verses 22 and following, but let me just tell you this. In verses 22 and 23, he tells us what we should do for the good of others. 
And then finally, he tells us what God will do in Christ in verses 24 and 25. So in this, this morning, we're going to work through the first two points. What it is that the Christian should remember and what it is the Christian should do for our own good as we contend for the faith, if you would, faithfully or, if you like, God's way. Okay, and that takes us again to verse 17. First of all, what is it that we ought to remember? And so you see there, if your Bible's open, but dear friends, the old King James has the word beloved or loved ones. Agape tos is the word. It's a wonderful word. It, it, it means you well-loved people. Okay, you well-loved people. That, that is what the Christian is. So you have the context where the deceivers are always complaining, always saying bad things about everything, about God and his providence. And, and Jude says, no, no, listen, you Christian, you are well-loved. You are, you are well-kept. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. And so per- the person comes along and says, well, I don't feel l- well-loved. And so you would immediately say to them, okay, what I need you to do is I need you to think right. You need to think theologically. You need to let your feelings catch up with the truth. And so I have a song that regrettably I often sing to myself, only to myself, and it has the lines, and it just is like my checklist. This is why I am well-loved. This is why the Christian is well-loved. Loved before the dawn of time. Ephesians 1, check. Chosen by my maker. Hidden in my Savior. Check. I am his and he is mine. Cherished for eternity. All the chains of Satan's curse lifted through Christ's offering, satisfied through suffering. And here it is. All the blessings Christ deserves poured on my unworthy soul. So Christian, you are a well-loved people. And what is true between God and his people ought to be true for the people and their pastor. That's why I think NIV says it there, my dear friends or dear friends. That phrase is an endearing term between the congregation and the pastor. I made a list of all the ways that a pastor should love their congregation. I'm not going to share it this week. I'm going to hopefully share it next week. But dear friends, remember, okay? And that's another important, important word in verse 17. Menisco is the Greek word. It means this in this context. Jude is saying we are to actively remember in order that we can purposely recall so that we are not overly alarmed when the apostles who prophesied what will happen, happens. Let me say that again. This is what the word means. We are to actively remember in order that we can purposely recall so that we are not overly alarmed when what the apostles prophesied will happen, happens. So this week I received a letter, and in it was written the lines at the very end of the letter, since we will all eventually suffer deeply in some way, in this world, we ought to prepare ourselves for its coming. Okay, that was staring at me in the letter. And so what I immediately did was I was like struck by that truth. And I think I was taken back a bit for two reasons. One, it's absolutely true. We will all suffer deeply in this world. And second, and I think my conscience was telling on me, I might need some work in that particular manner. So I determined to tell myself this line every day this month. Joe, remember, you will eventually suffer deeply some way in this life. And Joe, you ought to prepare yourself for its coming. In other words, you ready? Joe, actively remember in order that you can purposely recall so that you are not overly alarmed when the suffering comes. 
And that's exactly what Jude is telling his readers in the same way. Keep in your minds what the apostles had prophesied as a settled priority in your life and in the life of the church. Okay, so that leads to a few questions, which we're going to try to answer. Who are the apostles? Why should we believe them? And what did they say? Okay, well, the apostles, who are they? Well, they were sent to do something and to say something by someone else, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. They were his stewards, they were his heralds, they were his servants. Christ sent them out as as sheep among wolves. He gave them the authority to do and say what they said and did. Okay, so then why should we believe them? Well, we should believe them as we would believe Christ because Christ promised his apostles that, that when the Spirit came, he would lead them, John 16, he would lead them to all truth. Having been brought to all truth, they in turn spoke the word of God. That word is now given to us, written down in the authoritative, supreme, and sufficient word of God, so that all may be led to all truth by the Spirit from the Bible. It's important that you understand that. So Graham Goldsworthy says, We accept the Bible as the one word of the one true God about the one way of salvation through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. Okay? And because of this, and because of the finality of their work, that they were given, you ready, all truth, because they were given all truth and they wrote it down for us, no new apostles are needed. Because what more could they say than what they have said? Therefore, to listen to an apostle was part and parcel of listening to Jesus. And so when we read from the apostles, It's part and parcel of reading and listening to Jesus, his voice. So those are the questions. Who are the apostles? They're stewards, they're heralds, they're servants of Christ. They were given a unique and unrepeatable ministry, which all of us benefit from this day. Why should we believe them? Because what they say is what Jesus said, and what they do is what Jesus would do, and what Jesus told them to do and told them to to say. Okay, so then what did he say? Well, here, verse 18 again, They said to you, and you're going to notice if your Bible is open that it's in quotes, which means some of the apostles came to this church, which we don't know anything about, but we know it exists, and they said this to them, hence the quote. So so apparently Jude is a good note taker during the talk. When the apostles were talking, he was taking notes. He took such good notes that he could quote them. Okay, so then what did they say when they were with you? In the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires or, or, if you would, their worldly passions. And if you know your New Testament, you have those warnings all throughout it. Let me give you some, some scriptures. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit clearly says that in the last times, some will depart from the faith and follow deceiving spirits. In other words, there's going to be people who are seemingly in the faith at the beginning and they will leave the faith before their end. 2 Timothy 3, understand this. There'll be those who creep into households taking captives. 2 Peter 2, 1, there will be false teachers among you. And you can't get any more clear than that. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And their greed, which always seems to be the problem of the deceivers, in their greed, these the teachers will exploit you with made-up stories. Hmm. Acts 20. Paul 
is about to leave the Ephesian church and he warns the church and he warns the elders this. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and twist the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Right? If you played swords when you were a kid, you would say to your brother, on guard. That's what Paul is saying. On guard. Okay, congregation, on guard. Actively remember in order that you can purposely recall so you're not overly alarmed when the, what the apostles prophesied will happen actually happens. So then out of this comes a question. I have to ask you this. First of all, when, when the word is preached, do you have your Bible open on your lap in some sensible way if you can? I mean, when I give you a quote from the Bible, do you write it down just to check to make sure that the way I'm reading it is the way it should be read? And in light of these warnings that Jude gives us, do you carefully consider and think with an open Bible over all the, quote, Christian material that you allow into your minds? Because the fact that someone has a line of thinking which they say is God's mind, and they're able to justify this by quoting a Bible verse or two, is no guarantee that they can bring, that they're being honest with the text, that they're being honest with themselves, or being honest with you. Because the Bible has been used throughout all of history to, to, to exalt cruel political systems, to say ungodly lifestyles are not ungodly, and many false instructions that, ha- that have, are, if you would, are leading people to their peril. Listen to Titus 1.11. Paul says to Titus, Stop these false teachers. They are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, it's not too difficult to find a professor or a pastor who denies the virgin birth of Jesus Christ or denies the resurrection or or will not worship Jesus Christ as God. It's not too difficult. But there are other people who are far more elusive and, and listen, far more vague and far more attractive in their ways. Wolves dressed like sheep. Last year, Alistair Begg in a conference to pastors said this, it is a phenomenal naivety on the part of Christian leadership to think that some kind of theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating theology will be sufficient to guard and keep our people in light of the attacks which come not only from outside the church, but may well arise from within the church. Some of you know that I basically every week write down every word that I'm saying to you right now. It's a great chore. It's a great burden. It's hard. But part of the reason that I write it down is is one, my own weakness. I have to. But two, a long time ago, I learned this maxim that I've tried to follow. Reading makes a full man. Speaking makes a ready man. But writing makes an exact man. Because when you write it down, then it is what it is. And when you say it, it is what it is. And unfortunately, you can't take it back. So we need to be mindful here. And we need to say this, that those people who say, well, the Holy Spirit will help you. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit will help us. But this is what we need to know. The Holy Spirit only affirms truth. It doesn't reward laziness. It doesn't reward ignorance or vagueness or even indifference. And we need to be mindful of that. 
So David Jenkins, a theologian from the 19th century, this is what he said about verse 18, and actually he's saying it to, to pastors and to the congregation. Great should be the care of the ministers of Christ to warn the church of approaching evils, especially of seducers. The apostles of Christ foretold the coming of these seducers among the Christians. Paul warned everyone night and day with tears. That's Acts 20. They are watchmen, and it is their duty to give warning of every enemy. They would be unfaithful to your souls if they should be friends to your adversaries. Their loving and faithful freeness herein creates them many enemies. But they can much more easily endure the wrath of man here for discharging their duties than the wrath of God hereafter for neglecting their duties. It is better that the lust of the seducers should curse them a while than the souls of their people to all eternity. Ministers must defend as well as feed the flock and keep away poison as well as give them meat, drive away the wolf as well as provide pasture. Cursed be that tolerance which can see the wolf and yet say nothing. If the heresy of the seducers be damnable, the silence of the ministers must needs be so too. So then it makes sense. You, you have to remember, congregation, remember, beloved, what the apostles said. In the last times, there are going to be deriders, scoffers, ridiculers who will follow their own godly ways. These are the people who will divide you. So, so the work of the pastor, leading, preaching, watching, warning. Don't take offense to that. And loved ones, ours is not an easy, easy age to warn people in. Part of the reason why I think that is the case is because many people leave, live under the maxim that, that wealth and ease must mean wisdom and truth. And because of the former is all around and it's so deceitful, many will say, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? And yet we must warn them. And so since the work of the pastor is given the privilege to lead and teach, watch and warn and equip those who are under God's care, that's Ephesians 4, to equip the people of God for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and we all come to the unity of the faith. Since that's a reality for the pastor, any person who would deride the unity that is inherent in the faith and be a cause of division, being not united to the faith, ought to be then very apparent. It ought to be apparent to the leadership and it ought to be apparent eventually to the congregation. And that's why Jude describes them. Verse 19, they're dangerous people who cause divisions. So you have in these deceivers uh, great skepticism of the gospel. Great skepticism of the apostles, of the moral law of God. But they have great trust in what they dream up. They have great trust in their own leadings and their own spiritual truth. And again, verse 19, they cause division. They make distinctions or they separate themselves. It's all acceptable translations of verse 19. And so why wouldn't they? Because the Christian is the one who clings to the one gospel. It's our only hope. And we listen to the Apostle's Word, recorded it for us in the Bible. It's the true voice of God when we properly understand it. And we are like King David who said about the moral law of God, Oh, how I love the law of God. It's our meat and our drink. So the law of God points me to my sin. It points me to my Savior. And it teaches me how I ought to live. 
Well, that's terrific, but not so with these self-willed deceivers. They have subjective dreams and they have voices or they have personal contact with God that goes way beyond the biblical warrant and they come to us as like super spiritual elitists, you know, the special forces of the spiritual realm. Wouldn't you want to be like me? So says John MacArthur. They portray themselves as superior to the apostles, arrogant like the Pharisees, condescending, adhering to their own elite understanding of truth and instead of putting others before themselves, which is the key to spiritual unity, they exalt themselves, they exalt their own agenda. Naturally, the end result is division and strife. Now think with me for a moment. It makes sense. If you have people creating their own spirituality, or they're following people who have their own spirituality, self-created, how can it be ever united to the one genuine gospel and the one God and the one spirit and the one God and Father who is all? You can't have that. It's impossible. Verse 19b, they follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit, capital S. They don't have the Holy Spirit. In other words, these deceivers never open their Bible and follow Jesus in a sensible way. The moral law of God is trash to them and, and they follow what they think is true and right and good. Worldly desires, carnal appetites, and they pervert God's word to their own taste. So Titus again, 1.16, they may profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But they're still in the church. They've secretly slipped in by way of self. So they might say, you know, I prayed about it and I got the okay from God. But they don't have the spirit. They don't have the words of Christ. And the reason why we know this is because of the whole letter. You cannot mix a, a sanctity and sensuality. And that was the byproduct of, of the deceiver's teaching. It's sensuality. You can't have holiness and self-will sleeping in the same bed. And anyone who's determined to turn the grace of God into their own personal license to do what they want, when they want, whenever they want, that kind of person is dangerous. Sin controls their lives. And here in Jude, sin controls their destiny. Now we need to get to the next point, but just listen carefully. Yes, God is patient with our sin. Absolutely, God is patient with our sin. But we may never mistake the patience of God with our sin as the permission of God to sin. We say that again. Yes, we thank God he is patient with our sin. But we must never ever mistake the patience of God with sin as God's permission for us to sin. Okay, what should we remember, Jude? Well, remember there's going to be scoffers, deriders, they're going to follow themselves. They're going to cause division. They don't have the spirit. Hence, they are not Christian. Look alive. Don't be naive. Watch out. Okay, then secondly, our final point. He tells us what we should do for our own good in verses 20 to 21 as we contend for the faith. So he's told us to contend for the faith. He's given us the first step. And now here's the second step. And it's a very, very, very basic step. You can see it there if your Bible's open. Verses 20 and 21. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. 
Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love. Wait for the Lord's coming. Now, again, if you've been a Christian for just a few months, you know that that is the basic Christian instruction. These are imperatives. They're commands. These are things that every one of us are able to do. Rock, solid, basic Christian teaching, which means in our context, you don't need to make three easy payments of, you know, $39.95 to get the spiritual secrets of the universe, right? You don't need to do that. This is free. This is free. So the deceivers come and say, you need the secrets. You want to be, you know, like superior. You want to be that. $39.95, three times, and there it is. Really? Really? Is, Is that the way God works? This is free, and it's basic. Number one, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Now, this should not be confused with build up your faith as in your personal faith. This is not that. This faith that Jude is speaking of here is essentially the body of instruction from the Old and New Testament from our Bibles. This is God's revelation given to us in the Old and New Testament that that teaches us about Christ and his gospel. So this is not a figment of a man's imagination. This is from the mind of God. And Jude says that we are to hem ourselves in, if you would, on that building site. All the materials are right here before you. Keep yourself within that framework. Stay on that work site. Don't don't run away. There's not two kinds of Christianities. There's just one kind of Christianity. And so what Paul and Peter and and Jude does is, is they have in mind the Christian life as essentially a building project. And you're connected to one another, all other Christians. And we're stones, if you would. We're living stones. And the very person of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the Christian. And we are being built up together. Not not individually. We don't grow right that way. We grow together. In verse 20, Jude says, keep on building. That's what it means literally. Keep on building. Keep telling yourself the great truths of the Bible. I'm a great sinner. Christ is the great Savior. He is my King. The whole of my life, my, my intellect, my affections, my imagination, my conscience, all my motives, more and more increasingly brought under His objective, brought under His truth. Keep building together. Keep building yourselves up together. It's plural. So this is not, just, this is not personal activity. This is corporate activity. Constantly build yourself up? Yes. Corporately build yourself up? Yes, we, we need each other. We need each other. So if you know of Christians who are drifting, don't let them drift. Don't let them drift. Hey, I never see you in the morning worship service. Hey, are you part of a home group? Hey, hey, we've got some terrific material in the library, even on the website. Hey, hey, come to the prayer service. Which is a segue into our second one, pray in the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do we contend? Well, we build ourselves up in the most holy faith, our most holy faith, and we pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the dickens does that mean, right? Is that some, here we go again, that's some kind of special prayer for the special kind of Christians? So you have the normal Christians who just pray, but you have like the super elite Christians who pray, right, in the Spirit. You know, Jude keeps warning the Christian. There's not two tiers of Christianity, right? Christianity and super Christianity. Jeepers, creepers. I mean, who wants that? Pray in the Spirit. What does it mean? Well, it simply means this. Every genuine Christian has the Holy Spirit given to them. 
Paul writes, Romans 8, 9, and 14. You believers are controlled by the Spirit. You have the Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Pretty simple. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. The deceivers, verse 19, you see it there? They do not have the Spirit. Part of the Holy Spirit's promised work is to make the Christian aware of how things should be as understood from the Bible. And then the Spirit's work is to help us compare to how things actually are in the unfolding of our lives. When the Holy Spirit alerts us to this personally, we know His conviction. And at that point, we may do a number of things, but the essential thing, the basic thing that we do is we pray. We pray in the Spirit. Please, God, forgive me. Please, God, grant grace to me. Please, God, guide me and give me your power. Because when we pray in the Spirit, we say plainly and eventually, God, we want what you want. That's a Spirit-filled prayer. God, we want what you want. Jesus Christ, Luke says, was filled with the Spirit overflowing. And so what did Jesus do in the garden? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And in order for that to take place, you need to have the Holy Spirit. You need to pray in the Spirit. So you need to pray with affection, right? Romans 8, 26, the, the Holy Spirit interprets even our groanings, not our moanings, but our groanings. We pray with confidence. Romans eight fifteen. I am a child of God, Abba, Father. Cheer up, saints. Your sins are forgiven. God is your God. Go with Him. Go to Him with confidence, but not arrogance. So we pray with reverence. Settle yourself down. You're about ready to speak to Almighty God. Careful with your words. Careful with your posture. Everything. Calvin says this. Such is the coldness of our makeup that no one can succeed in praying as they ought without the prompting of the Spirit of God. However, someone might say, and it needs to be said, I was told that praying in the Spirit is only praying in tongues. Well, listen carefully. The only way that you can get that translation here in verse 20b is if you came already with that translation to verse 20b. And what that is called is contextualization. Okay? And what contextualization is, is this. Is that you go to the text with your own personal interpretation before you do a proper investigation, which always makes for a horrible interpretation and horrible application of the text. In other words, you go to the text already with your mind convinced of what, convinced of what it says. And you don't humble yourself and bow, if you would, to the word and do your careful investigation. So praying in the Spirit is a way that all Christians can contend for the faith. Two more. Keep yourself in God's love. Okay, what does it mean to keep yourself in God's love? Well, the, the, the one side of that two-sided coin is this. Know how well God loves you. Holy cow, know how well God loves you. He loves you. How do you know? Christ was sent into this world to die for all our wickedness so that we could live with Him forever in heaven. That is love. Big love. Big love. Okay, that's one side of it. The second side of it is this. This is the words of Jesus, John 15, 9. Remain in my love. Keep yourself in my love. Jesus, how do we do that? You ready? If you keep my commands, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. There you have it. Powerful God who loves you. Endeavor to consistently obey the Jesus who died for you. 
Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Okay, so loved ones, this is part of what it means to keep ourselves in God's love. Keep hating sin. When love for sin grows, love for God decays. Tell yourself the gospel every day and let it humble you and let it thrill you at the same time. You know, wake up every morning and say, I am not accepted by God by my personal performance, but I am accepted by God by the personal performance of Jesus Christ. Good morning. And your wife's like, get back to bed. Stop that. Tell yourself the gospel every day. Repent every day. Oh, man, repent every day. Watch the company that you keep. You know, go with the crows. You're sure to be shot. For some people, it's, it's hard for, for us to be around certain people. It makes us bad. So just be careful. Be careful. Watch the company that you keep. Don't stop worshiping Jesus Christ in the local church. Cultivate friendships that with people you know who really love Christ so that when we grow cold, we can get up to them and they can warm us up again in the love of God. And stop saying yes to yourself all the time. Don't do it. And get a proper sense of God's moral law to guide us on how we are to live. And if you want to know what happens to those who do not keep themselves in God's love, all you have to do is look at verse 11. Cain and Balaam and Korah, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil angels, and the unbelieving Israelites. All destroyed. All destroyed. Okay, Jude, please help us. How do we contend for the faith? Well, build yourself up in your most holy faith. It's not, it's not a private project. It's a corporate project. And it's to be done to our last breath. Pray in the Holy Spirit. God, we want what you want. Keep yourself in God's love. Say yes to what God says yes to and pray for the grace to say no to what God would say no to. And then wait. That's our final point. Wait for the Lord's coming. It'll be brief. Verse 21. Wait. Patience for the mercy. And it is a mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. Wait. A few weeks ago, I, I was saying goodbye to one of my elders here and, and, we, and we had one of those schoolboy moments and, and he said to me, well, I'll see you tonight at the prayer service and, and, but, not, but not if Jesus comes. And we both had twinkles in our eyes. To be honest with you, we were like, he could come. You're right. He could come tonight. He could come tonight and then we could just zip. Done here. Right? Done. Don't you want that to degrees? You wake up in the morning and you're just like, Mwah! Please come, Jesus, today. Okay, so then what does Jude say? Wait. Wait. Be patient. Wait for the mercy that will bring you safely to eternal life. How long before you drench the barren land? How long before we see your righteous hand? How long before your name is lifted high? How long before the weeping turns to songs of joy? How long, how long, O Lord, how long? But I know a day is coming when the deaf will hear his voice, when the blind will see their Savior, and the lame will leap for joy, when the widow finds a husband who will always love his bride, and the orphan finds a father who will never leave their side. Oh, how long, O oh Lord, come soon. Oh, God, come soon. O oh Lord, we wait for you. We wait for you. Come quickly, Lord. Oh, come soon. And Jude says, yes. Yes, but patience. Patience. 
as we wait for his mercy. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together. Oh God and Father, we would ask that you would hear the cry of our heart this morning. That you would enable us to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. That we would pray in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That we'd be given the grace to keep ourselves in the love of God as we wait for the soon return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours today and forevermore. Amen.